Welcome back, Action Alerts Plus subscribers and AAP podcast listeners. This is Chris Versace, and we have a very special podcast this time out. Typically, we talk all about you know the market, stocks, and the economy and things in between. But today, we're going to shake it up a little bit. We have, we are going to have a very special guest with us. That's Doctor, excuse me, Doctor Jack Trong a transformational leader who previously served as the global CEO of the leading building supplies company, James Hardy Industries, ticker symbol JHX. He was also the CEO of North America for Electrolux. To you, that's the uh, parent behind leading appliance brands like Frigidaire. And Jack was also a top C-suite executive with 3M. And across all of these, he's got a proven track record for delivering revenue and earnings growth. So uh, I know your name is Dr. Jack, but I'm just gonna call you Jack. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Chris, and please do call me Jack. <laughs> I will, I will. It'll keep things easy. So Jack, I, I have to say, I, I'm very excited to talk with you because you know, as, as we sit here today, we're in a just past the middle of the year, but we're really hip deep, we're about to be hip deep, in the June quarter earnings season, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, the economy. Are we going to see a soft landing or something more? Um, earnings expectations really have to deliver to keep the market going higher. Uh, you know, inflation and the Fed. And you know, in perusing your um, resume, you know, you've been around the block more than a few times, Jack. So I'm very curious to kind of get your take on you know, all of this, how, how you see the tea leaves unfolding, but also helping us understand how folks in the positions you've been in, CEOs, think about things. So what do you say we get started? Got it. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, you know, actually, right now we live in a very unprecedented time. Um, but I think it's very, very important to know, though, the bottom line is right now what I see is that uh, we'll, we'll probably have a, a soft landing in the economy. And, uh, and really, I'm not surprised about this because if really the, the, the critical metrics I have been looking at is that, you know, since 2019, our M2 money supply have increased by more than 40%. It's really from uh, $15 trillion in 2019 to about $21 trillion today, even after quantitative tightening policy implemented by the Fed this past year. Um, you know, the significant increase in the money supply is it's already been making its way into the consumers through many uh, federal programs these past four years. As you know, two thirds of the U.S. GDP is driven by household consumption. Uh, so therefore, it's not surprised that you see that our GDP had really increased 25 percent during the same time period uh, from about 21 trillion dollars in uh, 2019 to about 26 and a half trillion dollars to today. I and mean, that's that's a phenomenal growth. And then adding to that is the increase in the consumer credit card spending, uh, which already exceeded $1 trillion. And I don't see that decrease anytime soon. Um, and, uh, and don't forget that uh, next November, we have the presidential election. And uh, because of that, I would expect more liberal spending policy at the Fed level. And therefore, uh, there is going to be the money supply continue to be flowing through and trickling through the consumer spending, and I would expect that GDP continue, continue to be um, to be uh, relatively strong going forward. So I, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of data out there that the consumer 
is a key economic engine you know, inside the US. We're not the manufacturing powerhouse that we once were, even though we are seeing some reshoring activities unfold. But Jack, how do you, you know, how, I, I understand what we've seen, but there, there's some concern out there that the cumulative uh, rate hikes by the Fed, the um, tightening credit standards could make it a little more difficult for the consumer to spend in the coming quarters like they have in the past. Does that does that factor in, into your thinking, or are you seeing something different? Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I first of all, you know, uh, when, when we talk about the Fed raising interest rate, I mean, uh, to fight inflation, I mean, that is just, I mean, to, to fight inflation is really is not just a one-dimensional uh, solution. Uh, to me, that had to be done holistically. It really, like, well, I see the three-prong approach because right now, our economy is so much different compared to what uh, what it was in 1980 during the Volcker era. Um, so, to, really, to to approach the inflation uh, attenuation policy here is that you gotta approach it not only from the monetary policy, which is what the Fed has been doing, raise, raising rates at a rapid rate. Um, and, uh, and then you got to approach it from, from the fiscal policy. You got to make sure we control our spending and then, and then use our spending correctly, which is really about um, using our, um, our budget to bring manufacturing back to this country. Um, it, it's not sustainable by having um, you know, two-third of our, uh, more than two-third of our G- GDP is driven by household consumption. We got to have that through manufacturing, uh, particularly uh, manufacturing of semiconductors, which I, I really applaud uh, the, um, the administration of really to, to bring that back here. But you got to do more in manufacturing of automotive, um, a lot of more into the semicon- uh, in, into electronics and so on and so forth. Because for, for those industries, for every job that is created in manufacturing in those industries, there's, there's about 10 to 20 jobs that are created uh, to to support those industry in the country, and uh, as so as we approach uh, those three prongs, and that's how uh, we can uh, can really address the inflation issues. Um, the, the, the you know you cannot continue to raise raise the rate because that would just uh, you know of course that would reduce amount of jobs within the country. Therefore, reduce the amount of uh, tax that go into the re- revenue. Um, that, that really support the um, uh, the, the budget of um, the cu- country. So it's really it is not a sustainable um, solution. So let, let me let me back up because you, you said something a minute ago, Jack, that really kind of caught my ear. You you said that you are not surprised by a soft landing, and and you the the words that you used were looking at your critical matrix. So you, you met. So you mentioned uh, the M2 money supply. I'm just curious before we go go too far down. What else is in this critical matrix that you look at? Yeah. Well, I think. Well, first of all, you know our national debts today. I mean, it's just ballooned uh, by one trillion dollars from just a month ago to now thirty-two and a half trillion dollars in growing. And 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 that's. In a compared to our GDP, which really, yeah, our GDP literally grew by 25% over the last three years, but yet our debt to GDP ratio right now is more than 125%. Um, and so what, and then comparing to say, comparing to the um, 1980s, uh, which is about it's the time period where we have rapid inflation, that ratio was 35%. So it means that if today that the Fed Continue to raise rate, 
That means that the interest that we pay on our debt, it just balloon. I mean, right now, as, as we speak, um, you know, we, we're paying uh, the interest today each year about $650 mil, billion. And, and our the, the federal revenue, believe it or not, is only $4.7 trillion. So the interest that we pay right now is about 15, roughly 15% of, of our revenue. And as we continue to raise the rate, and then the national debt continue to go up, this means that our uh, interest is it's going to take up a significant amount of our budget. And just to give you a frame of reference here, our defense spending a year in the U.S. is roughly $800 billion a year. And right now, we're paying $650 billion uh, just to pay interest on our national debt. And the $800 billion we spend on defense a year, that is more than the spending of the next nine countries combined. You're, you're, you're giving me flashbacks of what I call the scariest page on the internet, which is usdebtclock.org. Correct. It's <laughs> incredible. And, and it is something that as, as you look at, you know, we're, we're now approaching the, what I call the exponential or the accelerating rate of debt and, and, uh, and interest. And if we continue to raise rates and at the rapid pace that we have seen during the past year and a half, that will essentially accelerate the issues that we have today as a country. So earlier on, you mentioned, you know, a couple things on the horizon, including next year's presidential election. And I, I know we're early in it, but do you foresee this very topic that we're talking about becoming a mainstream issue? Well, I, I thought it was a mainstream issue back in uh, May and early June when, when, when we were talking about the gridlock in Washington uh, with the debt um, ceiling crisis. And, and there was a lot of uh, discussion for, from both sides of uh, the aisle um, to, to make, make sure that we uh, manage our spending and have the right uh, limit and so on and so, so forth. But somehow that's get, that issue got kicked down, the can got kicked down the road again. And, not uh, not and to then, get too, let me just ask real quick, Jack, sorry to cut you off. Not, not yeah. to get political in any way. Is it possible that part of what they're trying to do with all the stimulus spending infrastructure, the Biden Infrastructure Act, uh, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and, and others that are out there, do you think that there's some thought that perhaps we might be able to grow our way a little bit out of this problem? Um, I, oh, my, my, by the way, I'm, I'm really pleased uh, to see the infrastructure bill um, that they really made its way into, into our um, uh, really the repair and, the in, and building the infrastructure for the, for the country of which, you know, if you travel to the Den, Denver airport or Lawadi airport, you see the result of that. I think that type of um, investments, which was really create jobs as well as create manufacturing jobs, because when you, when you build the infrastructure, you actually use a lot of cement, you actually use a lot of steel, you actually use a lot of the electronics that are, that are manufactured lo locally here in the U.S. So, so those those were uh, the the um, we like to see more of that. Uh, but but that's that that's kind of the small part of the spending budget that, that the government is doing today. So I, 
I think that's um, that is going the right direction, but they got to be more uh, more focused in those areas as opposed to um, spending across many different areas. Okay. Okay. So we were talking about inflation a few minutes ago, and as I mentioned in your in your past, both at uh, James Hardy at Electrolux and 3M, you you've been through various economic cycles. Um, you mentioned that your um, your critical matrix that you look at, but let let's talk about inflation because on the one hand, inflation can be tough for purchasing power. It erodes consumer purchasing power. Uh, making it challenging for some businesses, but it's also, as we've seen a time when businesses can really push through price increases. So is is there, you know, tell us the CEO perspective on why at least some inflation might be a good thing. Well, I think um, I think it's a good thing in, in the short term, Chris, but in terms, in terms of um, as you run the business and lead in a company, you think more about long term. It is not only about price. You, you, you also have to look at volume and, uh, and, and really about the penetration of your product, of your business within, within the market. Um, and um, you know, in, in inflation, it's only good for the short term that would allow you to put through price increase. But if, if your product then becomes, um, becomes more niche because it's just a high price, then it doesn't really do um, good for, for, for your business. Uh, for the long term, um, so so whenever we have the in highly inflationary per- period, which I have lived through them, you know, for example, I uh, I ran 3M business in Southeast Asia back in, in the two year in the uh, uh, 2000 when the inflation there was uh, going through the roof, as well as um, in Europe back in in the uh, 99 98. So is so it's really about when you have the inflation period, it's really important that um, one look at pro productivity in in your business, um, and uh, and and second is that you have to look at at how you can continue to innovate in your pro- products and services, um, so so that you can provide more value um, uh, at at that now elevated price for the consumers and the market so that you can continue to uh, grow and, and penetrate into the market that you participate in. But if all you do is just take advantage of price, that is a short-term solution that would lead to uh, long-term deterioration of the business. Interesting, because it, it, you know, I, I understand your, your comments um, for certain industries, but in, in other industries, like we've seen a lot of food inflation, for example, you know, um, I, I I don't know how much innovation there is on the line at say uh, you know Burger King or Wendy's that you're going to get right. So it, it it sounds like you know it's it's possible not not to put words in your mouth, but it you would you wouldn't be surprised to see perhaps a you know a string of quarters doing well, but but then perhaps they price themselves out of the market. Oh yes, I and I do see a lot of businesses that that really suffer through that. And then, and then they, they couldn't uh, recover, and um, you know it is a and that's why, uh, in 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 my opinion, in any business you got to focus on productivity, and, um, and and also about innovation that um, in many different facets to provide a different type of um, services to the consumers. So you you talk about hamburgers, uh, right? I mean, yeah, I mean meat. I, I see the price of meat, for example, now going forward, it's, it's going to be more expensive because you know you see what happened with the drought and mm-hmm. then the heat 
in the in in the southern half of the U.S. today. So that means so does that you know that could be chicken, could be uh, perhaps the um, the meat, the protein meat of choice that you probably want to focus more on if, if you are in that business, for example. So, but but you cannot continue to 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 run your business the same way through these type of highly inflationary period. Okay. You got to involved. Now, you, you said something on innovation, and I, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit on this because, you know, in, in your time at Electrolux, um, I imagine that you've saw, you, you saw a lot of innovation that was obvious and some that was less obvious to us as consumers. And, and I, I asked this with, with the following backdrop. Um, during the pandemic, my dishwasher broke and <laughs> I had to get a new one. And right. I was told that it would take months. Why? Because it was in very hard uh, to for the, in the supply chain to secure chips, and I was and I, I conceptually understood that yes, there are chips in the dishwasher. I get it, but what they said is there's so many sensors in the dishwasher now, and you know measuring you know water temperature, how much water, you know all this all this other stuff. They really painted a picture that my dishwasher is uh, a lot more high tech than it used to be. And and before you say anything, I, I just saw too that the Biden administration is coming out with some labeling for uh, a variety of appliances and other you know increasingly connected devices to say that they've they're meeting some standard of cybersecurity. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to hack my dishwasher, maybe yours, but you know, talk talk to us about this evolution as it relates to innovation. Yeah, well, that that is the big question there, Chris. Um, but let, let me first answer you directly, then I, I can hear Yeah, you. yeah, please. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think you have to worry too much about cybersecurity in the dishwasher, but you do worry about cybersecurity in the refrigerator and then uh, and perhaps the oven. Because there's right now, there is, um, there is you know, for, at least I would say for the last eight, 10 years, that uh, you see a lot of uh, refrigerators now that you actually have cameras and sen sensors in your re refrigerator as well as in your oven. And, and the key part of that is really about allow you to, uh, as a uh, consumer, that if, you know, if you, you're busy, you're, you're, you're wor working, and, uh, and it would allow you to cook something at home while you're not there. And so with the cameras allow you, for example, you're, you're baking a turkey. And, and, and you're not at home, but this way you, you can, through the Internet of Things, you can start your oven. And, and then you, uh, with the camera in there, so allow you to look at it and say, hey, is that, is that really uh, ready or not? Um, so the same thing in the fridge. Um, is that there is also a trend uh, many, a few years ago that you have camera within the fridge. So that allow you to uh, say you're at work or you're traveling, you're on, uh, on the way home and you want to know, hey, you know, what, what am I missing in my refrigerator? So maybe on my way home, I stop by the grocery and uh, store and buy some something. So that's so that is the cybersecurity that you may have. So and so that, uh, coupled with uh, privacy, that, um, that 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 can um, and that's why you have that cybersecurity primarily more for for the refrigerator and uh, and, and the oven as the major appliances in the home. I, I'm gonna have to go check mine because. I wasn't aware there might be cameras, so that's <laughs> yes. that's that's fascinating, though. But but inherent with that, you know, a lot of people talk about cars and how if you look over the last ten years and you look 
forward 10 years, the, the chip content per car is just going to continue to grow. But it, but it sounds like these appliances are another application for, for chip content. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, I think one, uh, you know, one, one of the things about as a consumer products company, such as Electrolux, what, what we always did and, and do is that really understand those unmet consumer needs and consumer trends. And, uh, and you know, it is, uh, it, it, you know, when you talk about major appliances at, at home, it is, those are the product that you use every day. Those are your necessity uh, that, that, that you would need every day. But yet, is something that you don't want to interact much. Um, so what, what we always want to do is really provide um, uh, a lot more convenience for our consumers and to save time for the consumers. Um, time is everything. And then because certainly you, the, the days where you spend uh, two, two days, uh, two hours in the kitchen cooking is, is, is no longer there. You just don't have time for it. Um, so it's mean that you, you you have a lot more electronics inside your oven on your range that allow you to 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 cook without you being there and have a sensor that would tell you, hey, this thing is done. Uh, or you, you you can go back to the kitchen and see it, or you can uh, control it from from your device and from your mobile phone. So it, it's it's becoming we're everything has become more connected uh, to really make the consumer's life more easy. Uh, and and that's, that is why you see the appliances, uh, it's about uh, giving back more time to the con consumer in this very, very uh, busy world. That's interesting because I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but that ties back to what you were talking about, innovation and productivity as well. Productivity Correct. for the user. Interesting. interesting. Right, because that is about value that, um, that the UT really can provide to the consumer at the expense of perhaps, uh, you know, as, as a stainless steel price goes up, the plastics go up, electronics go up, that you have to raise, raise your price, but you deliver a lot more value to the consumers. So at the end of the day, is a much bigger win for the consumer than a win for the manufacturer. And of course, a win for the retailer. Interesting, interesting. Um, you, you just alluded when you were in Southeast Asia and in Europe, that makes me think uh, about the dollar, which is you know trading off of where it's been. It looks like the dollar might be a, a tailwind for US companies going into the second half of the year. Um, you know, you obviously have had a lot of experience in you know dealing with currencies, planning for currencies. Um, why just in, in a simple way, if you can, why is a um, if you're traveling outside the U.S. as an American, a strong dollar is fantastic. But why is the weakening dollar good for U.S. companies with a meaningful um, international footprint? Well, I think you know it, it's really you really have two different types of companies. So if if you have companies that have local manufacturing in local markets that you participate in, then it really doesn't matter what type of inflation you have because you have a natural hedge uh, in, in how you run your business uh, because you have local manufacturing local supply chain to support the demand for your local markets so it's mean that whatever the change in the currency doesn't really matter much uh, particularly over a, um, a, a little bit medium to long longer term cycle um, so, 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 for example, if you're like a Chipotle, where you're really serving a U.S. base with a, where you're harvesting 
and working with uh, U.S. farmers and, um, you know, ranchers and other parts of the supply chain, you know, swings in the dollar shouldn't be a big deal. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be a, a okay. big deal. And also that's, that's pretty sim similar to what happened at Electrolux and, and also at uh, James Hardy is that, and also for the most part, a lot of the business at 3M is that the local production serve the local market. So you have the natural hedge uh, against uh, fluctuation in currency. But when you have companies that really have a supply chain coming from one country that supplied the rest of the region or certain part of the world, and that's where you have a lot more fluctuations um, that, that you tend to, um, uh, to worry more about. And a lot of those companies, so they, either they don't uh, hedge the currency and then be and then be at the mercy of the fluctuating do dollars. Um, but if but if the dollar is strengthening, and um, and if you have a supply chain in the U.S. that say support the market in Europe, then what that means is that the product then become more expensive for um, to sell in Europe, and also the what the um, revenue that you and profit you gain in Europe and translate back into the US dollar become lower. And that then become a double whammy effect. And, uh, and also vice versa when the dollar become weak if you have that type of supply chain. Um, so, it's, so it's really for long-term business, which is really, I'm, uh, I'm a full proponent of having manufacturing, local manufacturing to support local markets. Uh, as opposed to being highly dependent on supply chain from, from diff different parts of the world, if you are truly a global or multinational company. So, so to the extent that the dollar is falling and U.S. goods become more affordable outside the U.S., potentially, that means that those goods can become more competitive. That might help spur demand here at the U.S. So two things. One, we could see that as another uh, lift for the economy, the domestic economy. Um, but to corroborate that, we want to take a look, uh, like when I look at the monthly PMI data that come out, uh, we also want to keep an eye on export orders to see that they're winning that business, correct? Correct, correct. Okay, okay. Now, you just mentioned James Hardy, which is in the home building, building products arena. So I'm very curious now, Jack, to kind of shift gears and get your thoughts um, a little bit on the infrastructure bill, but you said you already like it, but I would like to get your thoughts on the housing market um, for a couple different reasons. One, one you, you mentioned earlier about the power of the U.S. household. Um, so the more household help, more households we form, you know, the potentially stronger the economy, but they need to live somewhere. Um, you know, I think a lot of people got very excited about the housing market or renewed excitement, I should say after the May Housing Starts report that was very strong. Um, and I was concerned that it was a little bit of a blip. Uh, it looks like based on the June numbers that it the May may have been a blip. Um, and I noted too that we're seeing uh, the number of homes under construction at the end of June is weaker than May, which is weaker than April. You know, So the number of homes actually being built as we speak is a little bit lower. So what, as someone who worked in that market with James Hardy, what's your take on it? When do you think the housing market might rebound? And is there anything anything that folks like I might be missing, um, you know, just as it relates to the housing market? 
Right. Um, you know, the, I think the, the, the data that just came out this morning in terms of the uh, halves and starts and completion for the month of June, I think all of those data, of course, in my, in my opinion, is kind of noise. Okay. Uh, yes. And uh, here's, here's, here's why. Here's, here's how I think about the housing markets. The housing market, in my view, is really the total market. They have the existing homes, the number of homes today, plus the new home construction. Okay, so just to give you a magnitude, there is currently about 130 million homes in the U.S. today. And two-thirds of that, which is about 84, 85 million homes, are owner-occupied. Okay, and... And if, if you look at the new home construction data, which is kind of what a lot of people hear about in the news, okay, well, there's about 1.5 million, million uh, homes start new construction today. Just to think about the magnitude, 1.5 million compared to uh, say 130 million existing home in the US today, that's just a, let's say a little more than 1%. Right new home been built that add on to the existing home each year. But don't forget that a little bit more than 1% a year of homes are, are dis destroyed through, uh, through because it's so old uh, and also through fire and flood. So, is, so, so the amount of new home construction added to the, how the what I call the total housing market in the U.S. is really small. And then when and you break that down a little, little bit more is that, um, you know, so you have about 1.5 million uh, start in the U.S. And of which about 900,000 of that single family homes. Okay, so, so it's really, again, that's a very small num number. And, and, then, um, and then if you look now, so that's the overall housing market. And then you look at the the sales of home in the U.S. today. So as of now, this year, 2023, 20, there is about roughly uh, 4.1, 4.2 million homes are, are, are sold um, and uh, exist, existing home, and about 700,000 new construction homes are sold. And so that's to give you the relative magnitude. So when so new home construction is a very small part of the to, of the total. And so that's 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 another piece of key information here. Um, and and then if you peel back to two year, years ago, 2021, when we just came up with the pandemic, when the total how housing market went berserk, is that you have. The existing home sales in the U.S. in 2021, just two years ago, is 6.1 million homes. Now it's down to 4.2. And then new home construction sold in 2019, two years ago was 800,000. Now it's down to 700,000. So you can see when, when you see the data on new home construction, it's just a very small part of the total housing market. And uh, and so with so what does that mean? What it mean is that the U.S. today we need we we have about three to four million homes that um, that need that that we that, that, that are in shortage. So there is that big latent demand out there 
that the only way that can happen is the more builders build more homes at a faster rate and, and at the more than, than just the 1.5 or 1.6 million homes a year that, that you see in the data today. Um, so I would not be surprised to see that the, the market for new home, anything you do with new home construction will, it has done well within the, for, uh, for this year and will continue to do well through this economic cycle, just because of the fact that it's just a small part, total housing market, and there's a big shortage of homes in the U.S. today. So let's, so the, that other side of the housing market, the existing homes, so was that the part of the, it, it just compared to new home construction, it sounds like if you have 4.1 to 4.2 million sold, existing homes sold each year, right? Just for this year. For this, for this year. year, okay, for this year, yeah. sorry. But two, that, two that, years ago, was six months. Six months, that's right, that's right. So that, it, it sounds like that's a bigger opportunity in the repair remodel market, perhaps, as people move into these new homes. Correct, correct. And, and also the re reason that, you know, from, that we went from, from the sales of 6.1 million homes uh, sold two years ago, now down to 4.3, is because of the rapid rise in interest rates. And, and then so a lot of the home own, owners today, they, they're hesitant to sell their home because if they sell their home, they then have to buy into, say, a new, into a different home, but then that means that they're gonna give up their low interest rate that they have in the home today to a higher interest rate. And also the price of home, <laughs> exactly, Chris, and the price of home also have appreciated uh, yes. quite a bit. So, so that's why you see a huge drop in the existence, the sales of existing home from 2021 to now. And we will continue to see that drop if yeah. the interest rate continues to go up. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more um, concerned about it because I do think that as a result of the pandemic, there was a lot of pull forward perhaps in people moving. There was a lot of pull forward for people who, um, you know, didn't move, that they had their projects that they want to do around their house. They got them done if they could get them done. I know contractors were in short supply, but, you know, and I, I know the AAP members are probably getting tired of me saying this, but even though there are signs of some real wage growth, we've also got to contend with the return of student debt payments. So I, I, I think the outlook for, for housing might be a little... Um, Housing and consumer spending—it's—it it looks a little uncertain as we head into the, you know, the back half of the year. I think. Yeah, I think uh, for, for for the sales of existing home, yes, agree. And and also you mentioned about renovation. Uh, the re renovation market, particularly for high-ticket items like uh, like replacing your roof, replacing the exterior of your home, or building a new deck, and those are high-ticket items and and. More often than not, those are when the consumer go out and get a loan to um, to to take care of, and and that's highly sensitive to the interest rate. But if but for because then but for the small uh, ticket items like fixing paint, paint and something is inside the home and, and things like that, what I see is that that activity will pick, pick up because people don't move, but they can't, mm -hmm. they can't move. So that's where I see. That um, that the uh, uh, that the market in that area uh, will continue to do well. 
Okay. Okay. Well, let me let it, let me step back, Jack, and, and try and tap you for some some other thoughts. Because as I mentioned, we're kind of um, we're, we're at the middle of the year, June corner earnings. CEOs and ma management teams are going to start giving their expectations for the third quarter, you know, back half of the year. And I'm just curious, you know, when you were at um, James Hardy or even Electra Lux, how would you think about, you know? Um, quarterly reporting, quarterly expectations, and, and how would you um, kind of uh, contend with that knowing that as a business and you've got to deliver productivity, you've got to deliver innovation, you, you almost need to manage for the short term, but run the business for the long term. Correct, correct. So, because that, that, that seems like sometimes you might be serving two different masters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's true, but you know, I, I think, but this is where um, it's very, very important for any company who want to be, yeah, because the key for for any public uh, company or even privately held company, credibility is so important. Um, and, um, and and as a CEO, you just cannot miss um, and, um, and your guidance. Um, so we say, um, so that's why it's so important that any com company that want to be successful, they have to be very close to the customers. The customers are the one that actually buy product directly from you that you, you actually ship and then get paid for. And that's one thing because that would that will help you deliver on your short term uh, results uh, that you have a much better vi visibility and clarity on um, on on your uh, revenue and then the mix of revenue you have and then you couple that with your productivity and cost management you should be in a good position to give certain guidance um, and then of course manage for the long term you have to make sure that that you are uh, focused on the true end users or the consumers of your of your product because if uh, as you continue to um, that you grow your your build the growth plan for your company, you have to be able to deliver more value of your pro products to the consumers of so the end user, the one that actually use your product and and uh, and destroy your, you know, your product to the usage, because that is what will determine the long-term viability of your company or your business. I, so I, didn't, hear, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear anything, Jack, about sandbagging expectations. Um, you know, it, it's it's all <laughs> you, um, you know, it's credibility goes both ways. Uh, you you, know, you just cannot lowball the number and certainly and then uh, exceed it by a mile, and you cannot um, over promise and miss it. It's really about having the right consistently uh, good good range and then deliver on that. Um, that's most important because at the end of the day. Uh, is it's all, all about gaining the credibility with the investors and with the markets that would uh, increase the value of your business or the company over time. So for, for those folks who are listening, who are maybe, um, you know, new investors, you know, or, or even seasoned ones, given your insights kind of on the other side of the table, right? Being a CEO, being a leader who's delivered growth, what what would you um, any any words of wisdom that you would share to them about um, you know what what they need to understand as investors some a piece of advice that might help make them uh, more uh, a bit more wise in their decisions. 
I think uh, really at the end of the day, it's really you may measure the uh, the company or the leadership of that company in terms of their credibility. Um, so that's that's a very very important. And then the question you would ask is really trying to understand what are the critical few drivers for the company, and and so based on that understanding, and then be able to ask the leadership team of those companies, you know, what, how are you measuring how your progress against those critical few uh, metrics that would drive your business? Um, and then be able to, um, to see how well do they deliver on those? And because, and if, if they're focused, that they truly believe and focus on those critical few metrics that drive the business and then be able to deliver on those, then that's when you know that they, that, team is uh, focused on the right thing and continue to fo focus on the right thing because there's a lot of com companies out there that, um, that today they do this and then uh, two quarter from now they shift to this and then another year from now they shift into this you, know, you you just cannot run a sustainable growth profitable growth company if you keep shift in your direction interesting one one follow-up question on that how do you know or how can you test to make sure that they're uh, focused on the right metrics for their business? And what I mean by that is, uh, in, in my time, I've seen a lot of companies talk about how, you know, we're going for market share. We will sacrifice profits and we'll make it up later in volume, which never works. <laughs> it, it, you know, once once you start, it's very easy to cut prices for a company. It is yes. very difficult, other than an inflationary time frame, to raise prices and keep market share. Right? It, it's it's very tricky. So Correct. so so to me, I, I agree a hundred percent with what you say that you need to make sure you understand what the key metrics are, the key drivers, but making sure or understanding that the management team has the right focus has got to be critical. Correct, because you, you mentioned a very, very important there is that I would always look at the companies that expand in the profits. Okay. And it's, it's a, because just like you say, I mean, in my, my experience, uh, look, look at it, different companies and then, uh, and also look and assess in different companies to, for acquisitions. And a lot of times these companies say, yeah, we're, we're going to grow, we're going to gain more consumers, we're going to gain more subscribers, we're going to do this and that. And here's here's some metrics, but then so when are you going to make money? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. And you know, those are those are to me are the red warning flags, right? I mean, that's a, that's why a lot of the discussions, a lot more metrics on productivity, cost management. How do you leverage your resources? What are your 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 critical few that you focus on? And then you know, and then keep asking those questions and and make sure you measure the progress each quarter and to see the credibility and to see that correlation to the results. Because that's, and if you see that correlation and a management is, leadership is focused on it. And then if you, if you ask, continue to ask the same questions and then they're focused on it, you know that's uh, you're probably on to the right thing there. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Dr. Jack Trong, you've been generous with your time. Anything else, Jack, that we should talk about before we get out of here today? Yeah, I mean, I I'm really been paying a lot of attention on uh, on on our national debts and our and how and, and and you know and what's our fiscal policy 
for, for the next uh, four, four to eight years because uh, we're, we're really at a very interesting time. I think I mentioned uh, before is that, you know, we're uh, our national debt now at $32.5 trillion and, and, uh, and counting. And our rev- revenue, Chris, each year right now is $4.7 trillion. And then our, our spending is, um, is there, I think, around $6.3 trillion. That means we run a deficit of around $1.6 trillion a year as we speak today. So there's no way that we can pay back or make it or even re, um, stabilize our debt. And then at the, uh, at the, uh, you know, at the debt to GDP, 125%, that means that number will continue to grow. So it's mean that any fluctuations, any more increase in the interest rate it is going to create a lot of uh, bad things to the economy. Well, uh, you know, you know, Jack, I, I have to say, I, I totally understand where you're going with this. I, I, I do find that sometimes the average individual gets like they hear some of these terms, GDP and national debt. They, you know, they their their eyes roll back a little bit. So when I when I talk about it with folks, I I kind of liken it to an individual and their credit card. Right. Because you can run your credit card up and you can keep going. But past a certain point, you will be cut off because you can no longer make those payments because the interest, as you know, is is prohibitive. You know, 20, 21 percent, something like that on an annual basis that accrues monthly. I mean, it's very easy to rack that up. And unless you have a lot of discipline, a lot of discipline, which means making tough choices. Right. With where with. Um, spending where you have to spend or where you might need to spend, not where you want to spend, you know, it, it takes a lot of discipline to rein that credit card bill in. And and it's not fun. No, it's not. It's not. Particularly when you're so used, used to it. Also, Chris, it's something that I, I, I think I read a, a few, um, a few weeks ago that really scary though. I mean, yeah, I mean, the consumer credit card um, approach uh, exceeded $1 trillion today. But then what I saw is that we actually, but it's, but actually the, the credit limits for the American consumers is actually around exceed $4 trillion. Well, so consumers have not maxed out yet because, you know, because the, here you can get as many credit cards as you want. I so think, you, you know, I, I think that's starting to change. There, there's a Fed survey out um, on Monday of uh, we're so we're taping this Wednesday, July nineteenth. It'll air later in the week, but on Monday there was a Fed survey that was out that showed how uh, credit applications for certain end markets, uh, housing, um, automotive, and credit cards, including uh, folks asking for increases to their credit card limit, were turned down. And I, I want to say these these were numbers that were um, like surprising. Which tells you that you know the the concern about tighter credit that we had earlier in the year, sub, subject to these bank failures, that it is happening, and I, I think that's another reason why, I, at least I am a little more concerned about the consumer's ability to you know be a source of firepower, the way it has been for the economy later this year. Mm. So so we'll see. We'll see. Well, Jack, we'll have to have you back on because one, always fascinating to, uh, you know, peer behind the veil of how management teams think. So I appreciate you for that. I also appreciate your insight on um, how we should be thinking about 
um, driving the business, how we should be thinking about inflation, about why productivity is important, and, and so many other things that we discussed. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. Happy to do it. All right, AAP listeners, that is today's conversation. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Thanks for tuning in.